we turn now to the reading and preaching of God's Word, uh, I want to remind you kind of where we've been, where we're at. We've been spending the four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas looking at the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. It's been a really fun journey. These, these are the places in the latter chapters of Isaiah where this mysterious character shows up, who's known as the servant of the Lord. And what's said about the servant is he's going to come sometime in the future, and he's going to be the one to not only restore the people of Israel from exile, but to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, the things we've just been talking and praying about. And the whole question is always, who is this mysterious servant? Well, the New Testament says that it's none other than Jesus of Nazareth. And therefore, these servant songs are like early previews onto the person and the work of Jesus. We said they're like the earliest job description for the Messiah, for who he is to be, what, how he is to go about his mission. So we've seen, like in the first servant song in Isaiah 42, that shows that the servant, Jesus, is going to be marked by gentleness, by justice. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then the second servant song, Isaiah 49, says that Jesus will be the desire of nations. God said to the servant, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And then the third servant song in Isaiah 50 says that Jesus is going to be the model disciple. He's going to be everything we are supposed to be, and he will not fail to accomplish his purpose. So today we come to the fourth and the final servant song, and now we get to see what that purpose is. What is it that he's not going to fail at? And there have been hints all along if you've been paying attention. It said the servant's going to be rejected. It said the servant's going to be deeply despised. It said his back's going to be struck, his beard's going to be pulled out, his face spat upon. But now, right here in Isaiah 52 and 53, that purpose comes into full view. We see where it's all heading. What is that servant's purpose? What will he not fail to accomplish? He has come to suffer for us. This is how he's going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, by suffering, by being the suffering servant for the life of the world. You guys may know Isaiah 53 is the most famous servant song. In fact, what one commentator says may, without any exaggeration, be called the most important text of the Old Testament. No pressure or anything. Or what, one, what one pastor says is the single best chapter in the Bible to explain what happened on the cross. I don't know. Anytime we read God's scripture, we're on holy ground, but it feels like we're, we're on holy ground here. And we should lean in with the attentiveness that comes with being in a special place. Now, you might be thinking, Matt, Isaiah 53, this close to Christmas? Whoa, like, isn't this like a Good Friday sermon? Where are the mangers and the shepherds and the wise men and all the fun stuff? That's a good question. It's a fair question. But I want you to remember, even in the first Christmas story, the cross was always in view. From the beginning. Remember what the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1? You heard it in your words of encouragement today, even before he was born. He said, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. 
Brothers and sisters, Jesus was born to die. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. This, this is where the story of Christmas is ultimately heading. He takes on our humanity upon himself in order to take our sin, our suffering, our sorrow upon himself. So Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53. He starts it at Christmas, but he fulfills it by being our sacrificial lamb. That's what we have the privilege of looking at today. So would you stand for the reading of God's word? The fourth servant song is from Isaiah 52, verse 13 to 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will, I will divide with him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for the preaching of God's word. Almighty God, during this Advent season, you are reminding us that your light shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot overcome it. So even now, let your light overcome the darkness in our minds and in our hearts. We ask that your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture, would shine in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Should be seated, please. 
There's a story in the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 8, a story about an Ethiopian eunuch. This is a man who served in the court of the queen of Ethiopia. And he had just visited Jerusalem, and he was traveling by chariot on his way back home, on the road to Gaza, on his way back to Ethiopia. And as he was traveling, he was reading a passage from the prophet Isaiah. It's this passage, actually. Isaiah 53. He read, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And friends, at that exact moment, the apostle Philip happened to be passing by, and he asked the man, do you understand what you are reading? And the man answered, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to join him in his chariot. And once seated, the Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? That's the question, isn't it? That is the question of this great passage. Who is it? Who is it about? Who is this suffering servant and what does it mean? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. It's an amazing story. It's one of my favorite stories. An Ethiopian eunuch is converted from this very passage of Scripture. But I want you to notice how it all unfolded. He was reading, he looked at the man of Isaiah 53, and he didn't understand and then with Philip's help, he looked again, and he did understand that it was all about the good news of Jesus. And he believed. He was immediately baptized, and he returned home a follower of Christ. See how it worked? He didn't see, then he saw, he believed, and he received all the benefits of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I think that's the same path for us, too. And that's why the main question of Isaiah 53 is, what do you see? What do you see when you look at him? It's literally the first word of the fourth servant song. Verse 12, behold, that means look. Look at my servants. What do you see? It's actually the same first word of the first servant song in Isaiah 42. It started the same way. Behold, my servant, look. Which forms a nice bookend to the servant songs. That's been the main question throughout all these servant songs. What do you see when you look at Jesus? But now, especially for this last servant song, what do you see when you see him suffering? What do you see when you see him dying on the cross? Not just, not just being gentle. We like to see that. Not just him being the desire of nations. That's great. Not him just seeking justice. We love that. What do you see when this man is being beaten to death? Behold, look. What do you see? I think Isaiah 53 is like a Rorschach test. You know what those are, right? These little ink blot cards that they hold up. Psychologists hold them up and say, what do you see? The images are usually confusing and they're hard to look at. They all look like butterflies to me. I don't know. But your mind's trying to make sense of it all. Friends, that's what's happening in Isaiah 53. 
Jesus, the, the suffering servant Jesus is being held up before your eyes. And it's an image. It can be confusing. It can be hard to look at at times. But the main question is, what do you see when you see Jesus like this? Now, Isaiah tells you right out of the gate in verses 13 to 15 that it's going to be a challenge. Because what you're looking at is an enigma. It's a paradox. It's a polarizing image, and it will evoke polarizing responses. Look at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. What does that mean? He says he will act successfully. In other words, he's going to prosper in his mission. He's not going to fail like we've been talking. He's going to prosper through knowledge and through wisdom. Look, it says he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's a threefold exaltation. High, lifted up, and exalted. This conveys a glory and an honor that is far beyond any, anyone else. And yet, verse 14, as many were astonished at you. Astonished not in a good sense. Astonished means appalled, shocked, repulsed. And why is it? Because his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His form beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, he was so disfigured through his own suffering that he didn't even look human. It made people step back in horror at the sight and ask, is this even human? So you see the enigma, right? On the one hand, he is above all humans. It's a threefold exaltation that makes him greater than kings and everybody else. And yet, on the other hand, his appearance was so marred, his form so dehumanized that he looked like he was below all humans. Maybe not even human at all. See, it, right out of the gate, these first three verses, you have in this one person both unique exaltation and unique suffering. You have polarizing responses to the enigma that is Jesus. You got a reaction of revulsion in verse 14, and you got a reaction of submission in verse 15. Friends, when the kings of earth stand silent before him, that's an act of submission. Silence in the presence of someone they know is greater than them. That's the question. What do you see when you see Jesus? It's an enigma. How do you respond? With revulsion or submission? Do you shut your eyes in abhorrence or do you shut your mouth in adoration? How do you move from abhorrence to adoration? Well, thankfully, friends, Isaiah 53 shows us how. Scholars actually believe that starting in verse 1 of chapter 53, the narrator is like a representative voice of a believing community. People who now believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. But they're showing how they moved from unbelief to belief. From misunderstanding to understanding. From a low estimation of Jesus to the highest. There's four stanzas, four stanzas of three verses each, and they're describing how it happened for them. How they didn't see how they saw, how they believed, how they received all the benefits of Christ. Showing how it happened for them, how it can happen for each one of us. And so, let's walk through those four stanzas. First of all, verses 1 to 3 are telling us that in the process of moving from abhorrence to adoration, from misunderstanding to understanding, verses 1 to 3 tell us that his true identity was veiled. 
Jesus' true identity was veiled. And what I mean is this. Based on human observation alone, you will never see Jesus for who he really is. You need divine revelation for the veil to be pulled back to reveal his true identity. Look at verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Friends, the arm of the Lord is is a metaphor for the full embodiment of God's power. In other words, they're saying, who in the world would believe that Jesus of Nazareth, this suffering man, is the full expression of God's power sent in the world? Who would believe it? The implied answer is, no one. Not with the power of human observation alone, because Jesus was veiled in ordinariness. There's nothing about his resume that would make you think, now this is the power of God in human form. From his birth on. Not even his birth, which is kind of interesting because this is the season where we're reading the accounts of the Gospels and all these miraculous aspects of Jesus' birth. Right, we got angels, we got magical stars, we got wise men coming from afar, but evidently this was veiled even from Jesus' contemporaries. Because they ask in Matthew 13, 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Where did he get his wisdom? How does he do these mighty works? See, they all assumed he had a human origin just like everyone else. And not a very impressive one at that. He was from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? See, Jesus doesn't have a noble birth. He's an ordinary carpenter from an ordinary town. He has no higher education. He has no good looks. No form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. In other words, you wouldn't have noticed him. And so the author says, we despised him. We dismissed him. We laughed at him. We mocked him. We rejected him. We esteemed him not. Esteem is an accounting term. It's a reckoning of value. It's like we took a full inventory of his life. We wrote it all down in our ledger, and we valued it at zero. Because he was unimpressive. He was unattractive. He was weak. We didn't even want to look at him. Friends, let me ask you, is this not one of the major barriers to belief for so many? Is that the whole of Christianity and the church of Jesus Christ seems so ordinary, so unimpressive, so weak? I was reminded this week in another sermon I listened to of C.S. Lewis's great book, The Screwtape Letters. And in this book, there's a a senior demon who is coaching a junior demon who has been assigned to a patient who has just become a Christian, which is obviously the opposite of the goal of demons. But the senior demon says, not to worry, because the story's not over. He says hundreds of adult converts have been reclaimed after just a short stint in Christianity. I love this line. The senior demon says to the junior demon, interestingly, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. He says, when your patient goes inside, he will see the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious lyrics, mostly bad, and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and he looks around him, he sees the selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. 
you want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flip to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. <laughs> so insightful, isn't it? One of the greatest barriers is the church itself. Because it's ordinary. It's weak. Because we follow a Christ who is ordinary and weak to the human eye. The true identity of Jesus and his, ch and his church are veiled in ordinariness. Human observation will lead you to esteem them not. But brothers and sisters, divine revelation will give you eyes to see something so much more. Something better, something Christless. Because secondly, verses 4 to 6, the second stanza tells us that his suffering was vicarious. His suffering was vicarious. And this is interesting. This is where everything starts to hinge uh, in this great song. Because up until now, we have, through human observation, seen a man that is characterized by grief and by sorrow. And the prevailing idea is that grief and those sorrows were his own. In other words, they were his own fault. He has somehow brought them on himself. Perhaps even it was God's justice for his own sins. Right? What does it say? We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But friends, the light bulb moment happens when divine re revelation allows the narrator to see that Jesus was not carrying his griefs and sorrows, but ours, vicariously. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Born means he intentionally lifted them up. Carry means to take another's burdens as your own. Jesus intentionally lifted our burdens off of us and they placed them on his own shoulders. Do you see what's happening for the narrator, this light bulb moment? It's like, oh, he was pierced for our transgressions, for our acts of rebellion. He was crushed for our iniquities. For the bitterness of our human nature. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. He says, By his death, Jesus takes our punishment. By his alienation, we are restored to peace with God. By his wounds, we are healed. The conclusion is all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Because what I find so interesting about this is uh, psychologists and counselors have been telling us for years that the things that we reject in others are the very things we reject in ourselves. Have you experienced this? The things we hate about others are the characteristics we hate in ourselves. It was Carl Jung who said, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to an understanding of ourselves. Do you know what this means? It means that when we look at Jesus and we reject him, we're really just rejecting ourselves because he is carrying everything we hate about ourselves, our sins, our secrets, our shame, our weaknesses, our sufferings. He's wearing it all. He lifted it off of us and he placed it on himself and we said away with him, crucify him. I don't want to look at him. 
Friends, he did it for us. He suffered vicariously for us. He suffered as a substitute for us. He took the punishment for the worst things about us so that we can stop punishing ourselves. And so we could never have to fear punishment from God. John Stott said, The conception of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's what's unfolding in front of us. I find it so interesting. In the beginning, we rejected God because we wanted to be him. And then we rejected Jesus because he became us. But this is salvation. Jesus substituting himself for us, suffering for our sin. The human eye sees Jesus suffering for his own sake. It doesn't make any sense. The divinely opened eye sees him suffering vicariously for us. Thirdly, the third stanza, verses 7 to 9, tells us that his sufferings were voluntary. They were voluntary. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The emphasis in this whole section is on the sheer voluntariness by which Jesus endured the cross. He didn't object. He didn't fight back. He didn't open his mouth, although he was innocent. He chose all this suffering for us voluntarily. The lamb and the sheep illustrations are are good, but only up to a point. Because the fact is, lambs are silent on the way to the slaughterhouse because they're too dumb to know anything different. They have no idea they're on the way to die. Because a sheep is silent before it shears because he's clueless. But the Lamb of God knew exactly what was coming. He actually knew before the foundations of the earth, before he ever stepped foot on earth. And he went willingly, voluntarily, Again, it's a different perspective. The human eye might see Jesus as facing forces beyond his control. Like he's at the mercy of hostile forces that have set themselves against him, and he's powerless to overcome what has been set in motion. But the theologically trained eye sees Jesus in control the whole time, doing it voluntarily, everything he did, voluntarily. John 10, 18 says, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Or remember when he was arrested and Jesus drew the sword to defend Jesus, what did he say? Peter, do you think that cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Friends, you know this, you've experienced this. It's one thing for Jesus to have suffered all of this, and it's a quite another that he did so voluntarily by his own choice. Because this means that the only force that constrained Jesus was his own love for us. The only thing that held him to the cross was love. He volunteered because he loves us. First John 4.10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I know we're about uh, two decades late on this, but April and I have begun watching Band of Brothers. 
which is amazing. I am told it's one of the most realistic depictions of what it was actually like to serve in World War II. You actually get these, um, these little interviews with uh, people who actually served. And the story, if you haven't seen it, uh, focuses on the airborne divisions, the paratroopers, whose job is to parachute in behind enemy lines for, enemy lines for strategic operations on the ground. It's amazing. And we watched this, we're only on like the second episode, and we just watched them fly in on D-Day. Like, and they're in the plane, they fly, and like, they come through the clouds, and it's just like sheer chaos. And there's, there's explosions lighting up the sky and bullets whizzing every which way. And these guys, they jump out of a plane in the middle of all this. It's unbelievable. They're landing on trees or in buildings. They're landing miles from their target. They're separated from the rest of their company. And April and I were just watching all this, and we just kept saying, I can't believe they volunteered for this. I can't believe it. Like, maybe they didn't volunteer for the war, but you had to volunteer to be a paratrooper. I looked it up. The airborne creed is this. I am an airborne trooper. I, I jump by parachute from any plane in any flight. I volunteered to do it, knowing full well the hazards of my choice. So too, friends. How much more, actually? When you see Jesus enduring the cross... Should, be, you say, should you be saying to yourself, I can't believe he volunteered for this. Not out of duty, but out of love. And finally, verses 10 to 12, the fourth stanza, tell, tells us that his suffering has been vindicated. His suffering has been vindicated. He was vicarious, it was voluntary, but now he's been vindicated. See, we finally arrive where the beginning of the song said we were going to the servant being high and lifted up and exalted but the surprising path he chose to get there was through his own suffering for the sins of his people and now the concluding stanza says that the Lord has received his sacrifice as fully acceptable as fully acceptable as an offering for guilt God is satisfied with the work of his servant but notice also, the servant himself is satisfied with the fruit of his labors. It's like in the beginning when God was creating the world. At the end of each day, he would step back. And he would survey all that he had done. And he would evaluate it. He says it's good. It's satisfying. So too, when Jesus fulfills his work of fulfilling the will of the Lord, he looks over all that he has accomplished. He is satisfied. Verse 11, he shall see and be satisfied. And what does he see? Verse 10, his offspring. That is, the whole family of those he has saved from their sins. I love this. As one commentator says, we stray as sheep, we return as children. But I think what's so interesting is this, this whole time we've been asking, what do you see when you see Jesus? But here in the end, the question is, what does Jesus see when he looks at you? Verse 11, he sees many who have been counted righteous before God because he bore their iniquities. He sees sons and daughters who will share in his eternal inheritance. He sees you, if you were in Christ. He sees you dressed in his own righteousness, numbered with the saints because he was numbered with the transgressors, esteemed in the eyes of God because he was not esteemed in the eyes of man. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news. 
Through the gospel, he invites you to see yourself as he sees you, forever washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Friends, that only happens. That all begins by asking what you see when you see Jesus in his suffering, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Do you see his true identity, even though it's veiled in the ordinary? Do you see him suffering vicariously for you? Do you see him suffering voluntarily for you? Do you see him vindicated by God, ruling and reigning even now? Do you see the sacrificial lamb? The only answer for our guilt and our shame and our sins. Friends, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. Let me pray. Let's ask God to help us. Lord, we do ask for your ability, your power, your gift to be able to see. Not with the powers of human sight and human observation, but with eyes that have been illumined by the Spirit. Help us to see Jesus for who he really is, veiled in ordinariness and yet coming down for us, substituting himself for us, all out of love's sake. Lord, give us eyes to see in him our redemption, our salvation, our forgiveness, our welcome, our everything. And Lord, even as we enter into Christmas when this gift was first given to us in the world, help us to appreciate it all the more. So we know where it heads. Lord, give us eyes to see. Lord, give us lips to tell to our neighbors and to our friends that they too would see the beauty and the wonders of Jesus. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.